You're listening to the Ivy Entrepreneur Podcast from the Pierre L. Morissette Institute for Entrepreneurship at the Ivy Business School. In this series, Ivy Entrepreneur and Ivy faculty member Eric Jansen will anchor the session. All right, here with David Cicerelli from Voices.com. David, thanks for being on the podcast. Awesome. Hey, Eric, thanks for having me. Great to be here. Yeah, it's interesting still doing these podcasts remote. I always prefer to do them in person, but actually it's been sort of easier to schedule around a little bit more flexibility, getting to schedule people when they're at home. So, Well, and, and I'm sure you get a glimpse into everyone's homes as well, too. That's probably pretty fun. I do. Yeah, I get to see everybody's home office. So a few reasons why I thought it'd be really interesting to chat with you. One, I want to hear your founding story and share with the audience your founding story of Voices.com. And two, wanted to do a deeper dive into feedback, specifically how you set people up in the right way, hire the right people, and then give them feedback to course adjust as you need to, because I really, you have a really interesting system for doing that. So I want to dig into that with you. Our audience, however, is super interested in people's founding stories. And we generally hear that people, you know, start businesses to either scratch their own itch, they have a super deep domain expertise, or sort of stumble into entrepreneurship. And your story is an interesting combination of almost of all three and then some. So I thought I'd turn it over to you just to share a little bit about your founding story. Yeah, sure. Love to. Thank you. I mean, it's, it's my own story, so I, I feel like I, I can tell it well. You know, growing up, I was always fascinated with sound and music production. You know, mom and dad put me through music lessons and I even helped out actually at the local church for a while doing sound with the youth group. So there was that kind of thread weaving through my life. When I graduated from high school, I looked for a audio engineering or some kind of recording production program and, and came across one actually here in London, Ontario, called the Ontario Institute of Audio Recording technology. And uh, it's there where I learned to record and edit and produce really sound for everything from music to sound for film and, and TV commercials. And when I graduated, I actually opened up a small recording studio of my own and got my name in the local newspaper on my birthday. And that's when I met Stephanie. Stephanie's now, of course, my wife and co-founder in Voices. At the time, uh, she was a classically, she was in uh, the music major at Western University. She was a classically trained singer. And she actually came into the studio to record her singing repertoire. And uh, we ended up hitting it off. But because of that same newspaper article, there were other small businesses locally that wanted a female voice talent to record some commercials and some phone system greetings. And I only knew one person in the city that would fulfill that gig, and that was Stephanie. So I gave her a call. I said, my pitch to her actually was, do you think you could record this page of copy? I'll be the engineer and you be the vocal talent. And she agreed and we were in business together and pursued that for a while. And, you know, we're pretty successful, uh, you know, in, in a modest way here, you know, in, in London. And I should insert that, of course, uh, one thing led to another. We, uh, we dated, got married, and, and now have four kids. So I sometimes jokingly say that I, I married my first customer, which is, which is not marital advice whatsoever. But nonetheless, it's, it's how it actually all happened. We did pursue that for quite a while, you know, for the next kind of year or so. Again, myself as the engineer, Stephanie is the, is the voice talent. And we put up a, a very you know, pretty primitive website. We actually went down to the local public library, took out web design for dummies and hacked together our own brochure style website that really just promoted the recording studio 
And it wasn't long before other freelancers said, hey, do you need somebody who speaks French or somebody who can speak Spanish? Or do you need somebody who does character voices or narrates those long documentaries or corporate training? And we, we always just said, yes. We're like, yeah, sure. We can list your name and here's a link to you. We're a little audio player. You could click play and listen to them. And concurrently, there were clients at ad agencies and small businesses that were just looking to get a voiceover done for a number of different really use cases, but they would find the website and say, how do I get in touch with that person? And so that was the, you know, the proverbial aha moment, right? Of like, oh, well, what if we get out of the production business ourselves and instead let's be that facilitator. Let's connect the buyer and service provider together and really build what's now known as a marketplace. These are very popular business models. They're frankly pretty hard to pull off. We did somewhat you know, we were pursuing a passion, both of us, Stephanie in the kind of the arts and performing arts and music and myself on the more tech and engineering side. And yet what we didn't realize was there was this global demand that there was so many freelancers out there that didn't know how to either enter into the space. And then likewise, not every production, let's call it, whether it's an advertisement, it didn't need a celebrity. It didn't need somebody part of the Screen Actors Guild, the big union in the United States. They just wanted somebody with a great voice who had an excellent home recording studio that they could go on to a website and hire them. And so this was one of the earlier freelance websites. And that's really what Voices.com is. It's a freelance website. It's a marketplace that connects the voice buying client, as I said, ad agencies, video producers, and so forth, with that voice selling talent. And these are people who have a background in arts, maybe in radio, some kind of uh, you know theater or live performance, and they're looking to pursue that as a career in voice acting. So that's kind of how it all came about. So way way back, the first step that you took in opening your own studio, you'd always been interested in this. Why open your own and not go work for somebody else right away? Because like there wasn't like an entrepreneurial decision down the road where this, eventually it grew, but in the beginning you chose right away to do your own thing. So why not work for somebody else? I think that was partly my dad, to be honest with you. He actually encouraged me. I, the debate actually at the time that we were having as you know father and son was, do I go to business school? Or because I wanted to complement the engineering and business, I felt equally intrigued by both. And he actually encouraged me to say, look, you can you know, you can take out a loan and go to business school and learn that way. Or you can, you know, take more of the street smarts approach and just go figure it out. And you're going to, you know, learn a ton either way. And for whatever reason, I mean, I was a bit more of a, I guess, a, you know, if, if, if I dare say so, a bit more of kind of like the hustler, like I'm going to just grind this thing out, you know, and there's just lots of incidents in my past where, that was kind of more my, I guess, more my personality. You know, I had stories of like selling pop out of my locker in high school for like a dollar a piece. And I was always the guy coordinating like the hockey and baseball card shows and selling tables for $10 a piece. Like I'd coordinate a show or participate in a show, like garage sales with mom and dad when we were really much younger. So I kind of always had that, not, not intuition, but I, I guess like self-motivation to just go, well, this seems like it's an opportunity. Let's just go pursue it. So there, there yeah. wasn't a whole lot of just, you're right. I, I mean, I did think about joining on the cruise line actually at one point to become like an audio engineer and something more adventurous. But I suppose there's very few things that I, I like the fact that there was no like real rule book to be perfectly honest with you. I'm like, you know what? You can start your business. If you think that there's an opportunity there, you know, as long as there's, you're abiding by the laws and you know, it's, you can't really get it 
wrong in a lot of ways. It's often more about timing and, you know, maybe the, maybe there wasn't as big of a need in the market, but day to day, you can't, you know, you just need to go spend your time and energy in the best place that you see fit. Right. So was your, your dad pushed you a bit? Was he an entrepreneur? Did he have his own business? He, in a lot of ways, I'd say yes. He actually worked as an investment advisor for uh, investors group for years and in, you know, as I say, in a lot of ways, that's your, 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 your own, you know, boss, your own manager. Yeah. You're flying a flag of a larger kind of investment company. Yet at the same time, you have to manage your own book of clients and you have to market to them, develop the relationships. Like I learned a ton, including, you know, stuffing envelopes for 10 cents a piece and sending out mailers. So you just develop a great work ethic, but we always had ideas of just, you know, they didn't necessarily turn into businesses, but we often just I guess, noodled on ideas. My parents were very adverse to us having a skateboard uh, when we were younger. So we actually invented what we called the block board, which was basically a skateboard with like blocks instead of wheels. So it didn't go anywhere. Okay. We could still like do all the tricks and stuff. It was like kick flips. And it was pretty cool. And of course, all the other mothers thought these were like just genius because like no kids were breaking their arms. Right. But you still got to do all the tricks and like just in the driveway and stuff. So we always had ideas like that that we pursued and didn't see it necessarily as entrepreneurship, but I can looking back now, I know it was, it was pretty rewarding to be able to have, you know, come from an environment like that, that a family that encouraged their kids to take risks. Okay. Fast forward to where you're at today, because a very different business from you and Stephanie running a sound studio and even beginning days of the marketplace. I want to set the context for why feedback is important because this is a very different business than it was when you first got it going. So where are things at today with voices.com? Yeah. And just in the last couple of years, we were successful in raising our series A round of capital. And so, you know, up to that point, you know, you're, you're really getting, every business is going to need cash room to survive, right? It's often referred to as like the oxygen that's just like, you need it to keep um, pushing forward. And cash is either going to come from cash from customers, in which case you're actually selling something of value and they're rewarding you with their, with their money, cash from uh, debt, in which case we actually borrowed financing over the years from various banks and institutions, which originally started as a $30,000 loan and it was 50 and then I think 90, 150, 250, 500 and 2 million. And each time, of course, you're kind of paying off or paying out the earlier lenders. But I mean, once it reached a 2 million, I realized I'm doubtful that another institution is going to come in and lend us $2 million to continue. Yet we saw a lot of runway. So we actually ended up, as I say, uh, taking on, which is the third source of cash is cash from an equity partner where you're, you know, of course, selling a portion of your company to them and you're really co-owners together. So we were successful in raising $18 million US from Morgan Stanley Expansion Capital. So it's Morgan Stanley's, their global investment bank, and they have really a private equity group that's based out of San Francisco, Silicon Valley. And with them, of course, came a board of directors, which we had didn't have up to that point. And I would say all of the management and governance professionalism that was installed at the same time or, you know, suddenly became required of us, that it was no longer David and Stephanie owning the company 50-50. We now had really professional investors that wanted to upskill our people, our reporting pack and, and so forth. And so part of the use of proceeds in that was that we were going to be growing our team. And so the team's uh, just north of a hundred full-time employees. And so over the years, we've really learned 
how important it is to not only find the right people, but to have proper performance expectations in the performance management system. But that, that's probably the biggest thing that's, that's changed is, is the need to mature and professionalize our organization. Yeah. And that comes, especially when you get an investment partner, like the one that you brought on, there's a certain rigor that they would expect with your team. So I want to break down your, the feedback components. Uh, One of the critical pieces is hiring the right people. And you had a really great framework for how to think through, at least on your team, it seems to be a model that works for you. How do you think through hiring the right people? What's the framework that you use to figure that out? So we call it the three C's and it stands for curious, competitive, and coachable. And I would even go in that order. And what we needed to find was something that was that I could communicate to other people that might either be doing initial interviews or even somebody in, in HR that's actually doing recruiting. And we needed some way to, that serves as like a heuristic of like, well, how are we determining whether this person is a quote unquote cultural fit? Because if you just use the term cultural fit, frankly, too many companies use that as a, a way to actually introduce bias into whether they like the person or not. And they can't really pinpoint why it is. And I think that does, you're either missing out on really talented people that just aren't like you. And that's terrible. Or the flip side is all you do are hire people who are just like you. They either look like you, they behave like you, they think like you, in which case there's literally no diversity of thought. There's no difference of opinions. There's no willingness to actually have constructive conversations. So right from the outset, we tried to find some attributes that we felt were demonstrative of high performing people. And what we landed on were these three C's. And so first off is curiosity. And if someone's curious, you can throw them a problem and they can go solve the problem. They don't, they're actually, they ask, you know, the five whys um, and they kind of go deep in terms of like root cause analysis. They might have a framework for trying to understand they often would want to reverse engineer a challenge or maybe the reverse engineer like the solution and to understand why someone else did it. There's never this sense of like, okay, well, status quo, let's just, you know, rest on our laurels, so to speak, be happy with how it is. There's this desire to constantly improve. So I thought that was, these are all things that we really liked about those who are curious. And that might look like, you know, asking questions of, you know, how do you go about solving a problem? Tell me about a difficult situation you have to navigate through. And I even use the words like, oh, I'm curious, why did you decide that? Or, you know, well, what was the alternative? Were you weighing three different options? Why did you go with this one versus the other one? And just trying to get to the thought process in during those interviews, then that leads to competitiveness. And so those people who are competitive, it's not just that you have a background in sports, although that is a great kind of, there's a lot of analogies between business and sports, but even someone who can often be competitive with themselves, you know, artists or musicians are highly competitive with themselves, you know, even, even on a debate team. I mean, most people have some goals that they're setting. So, you know, I would ask kind of, you know, what is a goal that you had for yourself at the beginning of the year? You know, what have you achieved? What books have you read towards improving that goal? Like what are the, again, the tactics that you're actually showing that you're taking steps and just instead of just saying, oh yeah, I'm going to beat the sales record. Well, really what, what have you done in, you know, in, in your life up to this point, where, where's the evidence that you are competitive and that you're a winner. And then recognizing that you're not going to make that all on your own, that somewhere along the way, somebody's going to give you some advice. Nobody makes it on their own. They're going to be coached. And that coach could be just like I was mentioning off the top, you know, early on, my father served as like a business coach and a mentor, but anyone's going to have somebody who's in that, that, that role of the guide that can shepherd them to help them make those decisions. 
And even now, actually, one of our board members is an executive coach for me. I do a weekly one-on-one, which I had just a few hours ago. And same, same story. You know, I present a challenge that I'm facing the week. How did they handle it in their career? What were the alternatives? What have they seen that's worked and what hasn't? And I'm constantly trying to learn from other people's successes and mistakes. But I think that notion of someone being coachable and asking them like, who, who, is, who is a coach for you growing up? If you don't have a list of people that you can go like, I've learned from these folks, to me, that's either, you either just, you really believe that you did it all on your own, which I'm concerned about that because that means, well, when your sales manager is giving you advice on how things work here and how it can, how you can be most effective, if you're not receiving that, I think this is just going to be a really tough relationship going forward. And this isn't just in sales. I mean, that's in every role, frankly, uh, in, the, in the company. So we look for those three C's. We've got a kind of a handful of questions around them, but it's, it's not just saying, are you curious? Yes, no. It's like, I'm looking for the evidence that this has been a lifelong pattern that you've exhibited around curiosity, competitiveness, and coachability. Cool. And did you have those C's before the your investment partners, I'm not going to say forced, but, you know, uh, introduced a little bit more rigor or you introduced that rigor with the, the investment partners? Like, did you sit down and say, all right, we've raised money. Now we need to come up with our three C's. When did that come into the process? We actually had it quite a while beforehand. However, what I recognized is I was once given this advice is that the CEO should do, well, really, it's not just the CEO. It's everyone should do only that which you can do. And I'll say that again. So for me, the CEO should do only that which the CEO can do. So that might mean interacting with investors, interacting with the board, interacting with media, or being the leader in the company to deliver a tough message or a celebratory message. And I realized that I'm like, well, I probably should not be doing the first interview. Maybe I do the second or third interview prior to somebody joining. So I need to equip the rest of the kind of hiring manager and hiring process, people involved in that. I need to equip them with the framework. And perhaps, Eric, this is my my engineering bent to me of like, how do I engineer myself out of this process? How do I give somebody else a framework that they can follow? So that, you know, and we're, and we're we, that's since evolved actually into, you know, scorecard, hiring scorecards and so forth. It's definitely gotten a lot more rigid as I think most things do, but at least having a few attributes. And I would encourage those who are building a team you don't have to pick those three C's. You can have, I've heard of, you know, trust and humility and intellect is kind of being three other, like there's usually some combination of like what it is that you want to amplify in your culture as it grows. Cool. I like the, uh, the engineering brain. How do, how do I manufacture or engineer myself out of this process? Great. Here's the framework. Now everybody can just do it that way. Okay. So that's the first step is getting the right people on the bus. And then your the second part is making sure that they are set up in the right way. So we've, you've made a decision that these people meet your criteria. They're a good fit for the through the team. They've gone through your interview process. How do you make sure that they're set up for success? It actually starts with the job description, which is a bit of a stodgy artifact in businesses. But yet at the same time, there's a lot of freedom that can be relayed if somebody truly understands where my role starts and stops. And this isn't about 
having like artificial boundaries where it's, you know, and it kind of invokes the like, that's not my job attitude. We, we're not, we're not talking about that. We're saying actually within this area, you have total free reign, you have total autonomy, you have ownership over the results within this area. And you know, that, that could be a phase in the customer journey that you're responsible for. It could be security, it, you know, so whatever the area is, I like carving that out by being clear on the job description, keeping it to one page. And then we've actually even boiled that down to one line or one sentence job descriptions. And there's a few of them, you know, as a human resources manager, I recruit I train and I retain high-performing employees. Or as a, you know, as a uh, leader of public <clears throat> relations, you know, I strategize and leverage relationships and opportunities for visibility in the media and the general public. So whatever that might look like, I think you can get from like 20 bullets into a single sentence where people really understand the scope of what they're responsible for. Once that job description is in place, then there's kind of like the role. Yes, the responsibilities. We usually, well, we do identify, I'm going to say two to three objectives. And, you know, really what that means is it's, it's a metric of some kind. It's often it you know, can be done in terms of deliverables. It could be a score like a customer satisfaction score or a retention rate for employees. If you're in, in, in human resources, you know, there's this, there's going to be some type of quantitative element to that role because failing that again, it's not about, you know, as a manager saying you didn't do your job because you didn't hit the metric. It's actually I think it's, we try to set it up as more of a challenge to say, here's the objective, here's how your success is going to be measured. And then if we can chart it, that's fantastic. You see changes over time. It spurs on other questions. So, you know, agreeing on how that's going to be measured. And then actually what we do is we create a number of real-time dashboards. They could be, you know, depending on kind of what the system is. But there's real-time dashboards that are updated daily or frankly in real time. And then we go through monthly reporting sessions as well too. So there's a real strong, if you can hear between the words here, a real strong emphasis on performance that is more than just this kind of wishy-washy, oh, I feel like I'm doing well. It's like, no, it's, it's again, it's the proof points with data that really show that performance is happening. And do you, or does some, does a manager write that one word job description or does that employee develop it with the manager? We try to have the employee develop it on their own. There's a greater sense of ownership over that. If they need some help, they can ask around like to others, if there's people in a similar role, but yeah, it's the one, you know, it, it goes both ways, but usually people try to write it on their own. Yeah, cool. All right. So they you've you've hired the right person, you set them up in the right way with the one page and then the one word job description and tied a specific metric or a few metrics that are going to let them know that they are either successful or not successful in that role. Next piece that I wanted to move to was how do you see whether, so I guess the metric could be one way to see whether they're doing well or not, but I'm thinking, I guess I have a lot of experience with sales roles, right? Or salespeople. And the number might be, you know, if you got an annual quota of a million dollars and break it down by quarter, it's, you know, quarter million dollars in Q1. Well, if you've hired someone January 1, it's going to take them a certain ramp time to actually, you know, get up to speed to be able to hit their number. So you may have some grace period there. So how do you figure out 
whether someone is on track to deliver on ultimately what they're at the company to do. Mm -hmm. And I, I love that you use this, this term ramp time because I'd actually, likewise, I heard that so much and I go, okay, well, fine. We're going to give somebody, let's call it, what, do we give them six months ramp time? And then you hear like, oh, it takes a year for somebody to get up to speed. I'm like, am I just kind of holding my breath for a year to see? I'm like, I felt I needed something more concrete. So I realize, you know, here's, here's another one of my kind of rules of three frameworks, which they just, they, they, they haven't failed me yet. So I'll keep uh, rolling with them. And the, the, this one is really in those first 30 days. I mean, my goodness, somebody applied for, to, to join your company. You've interviewed them. They fought tooth and nail to get this job. They've probably negotiated hard you've determined that they're uh, so far the right fit in those first 30 days. We actually, we have everybody write their own 30, 60, 90 day plan in those first 30 days. And usually in the first 30 days, what an employee is most likely saying they want to do is just to learn, right? And kind of absorb all this information, absorb the culture, understand, you know, who the customers are, about the company, like what's the competition like out there. They're trying to absorb all this information. And through that period, what I'm looking for is a great attitude. So I go first 30 days, you need to have a, the, like... I mean, talk about first impressions. You're probably, this is going to be the time where you're going to really see their, them, that new employee on their absolute best behavior. It's also in the middle of a probationary period. So like you really better see them on their best behavior. So after that kind of attitude and that willingness, they're just getting the confidence to be able to take that next 30 days. So at the 60 day mark, now I'm looking for effort and really kind of applying that knowledge that they've learned in the first 30 days into something, again, something to reuse the term, something tangible. It could be a deliverable, it could be a presentation, it could be their first 25 sales calls. How are the, the, the initial situations where they're creating value and adding value to the company? So I look for the effort and usually in that next 30 days, so at the 90 day mark, there's early results. And so we go from attitude to effort that leads to results. If at any point that an employee is slipping behind, getting frustrated, then we just try to reset that. And this isn't just about the first 30 days of employment at a company. You know, th there might need to be that tough love conversation of a performance improvement plan type thing. And our performance improvement plans follow that same 90-day window where it's like, Hey, we've, we've missed targets. Uh, again, this isn't just about sales. This is about, you know, you've missed deliverables or deadlines in a consistent manner. The attitude seems to be kind of degrading because of that. I understand you're frustrated. Do we want to work this through together? I'm, you know, giving you an opportunity here. You let me know if we want, do we want to work on this together? Yes. Great. We got to start off by resetting the attitude. And then through that period, you know, let's, let's put in the effort. And then finally, I know those results are going to come because they've come with everybody else who seems to kind of follow that pattern. And it's completely, what I love about that is the first two are completely in the control of an employee, whether they're new to the company or they're struggling, showing up every day in person or virtually with the right attitude and then putting in the hard work, which is the effort and the results will be there. I'm way more lenient and willing to kind of extend the grace, as you said, on the 90 days plus, if those first, you know, if there's evidence of the attitude and effort that, that, that results, um, that can go out longer than 30 day, uh, you know, that 90 day plus if needed, but the prerequisites are showing up with a great attitude and, and putting in the effort. Cool. 
Cool. I love I love that framework. I remember you you'd shared it with me before, and it's something that really stood out. And I feel like sometimes I'm on a little bit of a condensed time frame with it. You know, like there are employees, for example, in the summer, you bring on a summer student where they're only there with you for four four weeks or so. So how do you figure take the same framework but maybe condense it in in time frame? But I love the idea of you know make sure that they've got the right attitude and then screen and make sure that they're putting in the right effort and ultimately if you do those things right, then the results, you start measuring the results after those first two. So I love that framework. How do you then make sure that they get ongoing feedback? So I want to, and you could do it more, more generally, like what's the framework that you use to make sure that employees are course adjusting as required? And then I'd love to dig into if and how that's changed, given that we're, you know, managing primarily a remote workforce Mm -hmm. now. So I, I try to break this into two two streams. One is in let's call it group settings, and the other one is one one on one. And there are certain messages that need to be delivered in a group where you're either you know recognizing and rewarding a great achievement or celebrating together. There's other times where the message just needs to be given one on one. So actually, you know, to, to, to answer the question, we've intentionally tried to at Voices tried to keep up a lot of the same cultural norms and practices around giving feedback. And so we have, for instance, a weekly leadership team meeting and virtually every kind of group or department's functional area has their own team meetings as well. So that's kind of the, the, the direct team. Once a week, we do a company-wide all-hands huddle, which is 15 minutes. And that goes over, you know, good news and numbers and celebrates wins for the whole company. And then also a quarterly rally, which is the longer kind of typical town hall reviewing results and, and seeing and learning what the departments had been working on them with the previous quarter and then what's up for the next quarter. Those are the bigger group ones, but we complement that with making one-on-one meetings routine. And I actually hold mine all on Fridays. I batch process them together and it's half an hour and I actually open it up by saying, this is your time. We have a shared document. We've evolved this over the years, but it's gone from a shared Google doc, which was just add in the talking points that you want to cover that week. And it's just one long living document that's moved to Google keep, which is more of like a task checklist type thing. And we just cross off. It's not meant to manage projects. This is just where do we want to keep the talking points. And now we're on to Asana, which is more of a project management system. But we do, we literally just call it for discussion and it's just talking points. So the key there is that instead of the interruptions throughout the week of like important, but not necessarily urgent, if you know what I'm saying, so we just try to add them to the talking points list for the upcoming one-on-ones. But I'm very disciplined about holding those. I always say this is your time. If you don't want to cover anything that's on there, then that's fine. And sometimes, to be honest, the conversations just go in unexpected areas that someone's really challenging working from home. Um, their kids, you know, are, are, you know, all over them throughout the day. Both parents are trying to work at the same time. Homeschooling is not effective. These are the kind of challenges that are real and we're hearing. And so we might come up with a flexible work schedule of like, look, you don't need to be in front of your computer for nine to five. If really your kids are young and they're all asleep by eight o'clock, maybe we 
shift a couple hours into the evening. So we try to come up with solutions like that, but that's the kind of thing that's going to happen in a one-on-one. You know, we will cover, I usually just try to cover like a highlight and low light over the last week and kind of what are you looking forward to next week? It's the kind of environment where you're going to have that safe conversation. I'll even say in the safety of this conversation or in the privacy of this conversation, you know, is there any, can I share something with you? Or, you know, is there anything you want to share? You sometimes have to explicitly state that just to give the other party comfort. But whether the one-on-ones are happening weekly or some people kind of bi-weekly, the frequency can change. That's hap- that's that's important. I just think the, that that's flexible. I just think that they need to be consistent, that there's a time and a place and some type of predictability that the employee that you're working with or managing knows when they can bring something up the next time. And so those are the one-on-ones. And then the more formal feedback would be a quarterly performance review. We're reviewing the quarterly objectives, you know, if the targets have been met or not, you know, what's what's working, why didn't that happen? I've actually got these five questions that I landed on. But the, the, the first one is, you know, is really what's your target and or what's your gap to target and how are we going to close that? So these are the type of questions that I've try to share that I find myself asking, it can seem somewhat repetitive of, hey, we, we already know your targets. I see that we're trailing, like, what's your gap to target? And what are the mitigating actions that we can, uh, and factors, what actions can we take to overcome that? It's surprising that now, like sometimes team members, like volunteers, like I know I'm trailing a bit. I've made really good progress here on this other area I'm trailing. And here's what I've already taken the initiative to take some steps for that. So that when it comes time to that formal quarterly performance review, no one should be surprised on how they ended the quarter. I mean, you're probably tracking that all the way through. And we actually use a really simple system, uh, which is meets expectations, exceeds expectations, or does not meet expectations, which is really, did you complete the objectives that you had, that you set out for the quarter? And I'm talking like three to five at most. We try to make them as numerical as possible, you know, smart goals, if you will, just so it's super clear that it's that there's a finish line. And if it if it's really, you know, we mentioned the million dollar annual quota, well then just set the quarterly, you know, understand how are you pacing this quarter? And if it's probably going to be a similar goal for the next quarter, another 250,000 in sales, well then great. If you're you're meeting this quarter, just repeat that goal again for the next the next one. But overall, I've actually tried to make a point that these are very constructive and I guess encouraging conversations. You know, n- there's nothing to be feared here. I actually give the headline at the beginning, I say, you had a great quarter. This is, I, I have you down on as in exceeds. I say that right off the bat. So there's not like this anxiety for, you know, 29 minutes before you drop it at the end. I've also gone the other way to say, look, this was a really tough one. I, unfortunately, I think we both would agree that it's fair to say this, that we didn't meet expectations this quarter. And here's why I think was the case. You let me know if I misunderstood the situation. Happy to revisit if you think that that's, that's, but here's, here's what I saw. And have that conversation. But the consistency through all of these, the team meetings, the one-on-one, you know, weekly, bi-weekly, and then the quarterly, it's getting that frequency right in the different environments, I think is what creates a robust performance management and feedback system. Yeah. You've been really good about keeping, at least you share with me, really good about religious almost about keeping those one-on-ones. I found when I had a larger team, I'd schedule them back to back and then I'd, you know, you get traveling or client meeting would come up or other priorities. And I would end up, you know, you skip a one-on-one or you bump a one-on-one for one week and then you're two weeks behind. And I'd always felt like I was trying to play catch up when I did them with 
mind you, I had too many direct reports, but how many, how many people do you do that for on a Friday? On Friday, it's eight. And so it's a pretty full day for sure. It's been as high as like 12 and you're right at a certain point, it just gets to be, and, and it's not just you, it could be the other person that's taking a week off or vacation or, you know, has to, has to run an errand during that time or doctor's appointment, what have you. So life happens for sure. Uh, and frankly, that's why I like this talking points approach because if in the event that neither of us can meet, then it can be as simple as like, hey, I checked Google Keep or I checked Asana or I checked our document and I see that the most important thing it looked like that you wanted to cover was X. Let me just give you a quick couple uh, one lines about that or let me send you a resource or let me intro you to somebody else. I try to just keep some of that stuff moving and it's okay. If you don't get to everything on that list, it's a list. It's going to stay there. Sometimes we reprioritize. We have a section called deferred indefinitely, which is just like, we talked about it. We don't want to cross it off like it's done, but like, boy, we, we don't need to keep seeing it there every single week. So there's, there's different ways that you'll find. I think it's a real personal approach to how you're going to run these, but the consistency is, is the big one. Do you find, are, are a lot of the actions on you or are most of the actions out of those one-on-ones on the people that you're doing the one-on-ones with? Or is it really just a brain dump, like a discussion and not actually come out of it? Yeah, I love that term because I, I use that all the time. I use it as a brain dump. It's actually often in the moment, rather than sending an email midweek and going like, hey, please research this thing, you know, or like, I think this is a big opportunity. And then there's this flurry, like it's like literally that's a distraction midweek. I tend to put it on there because I, I like that it serves as a holding pattern to let both of us just gel on it for you know a couple days to the moment. We, and you, you'd actually be surprised. Like A lot of entrepreneurs have so many ideas that they just need somewhere to put them. And that's kind of what it served as is the brain dump ground. I'm like, who would I need to talk to from our company that I think could take this further? And I'll just take a guess. Sometimes it even switches from like one person's list to somebody else's. More often than not, honestly, Eric, is like, we're like, yeah, you know, you brought that up three weeks ago. And I'm like, I did? And they're like, yep, we've already talked about that. I'm like, oh, right. Or we just go, we determine in the moment, go to indefinite because we're just not, we don't see it or just just cross it off and just cut it out entirely. And at least that way, it's like, it's almost, it's an outlet and for as many as those ideas, there's actually ideas that come up from, you know, your, your direct report, which can be, hey, do you think that this is a good idea? Do you think there's an opportunity here? Have we done something this, with this before? I jokingly refer to myself as the company historian. So I'm often like, yeah, we actually did try that three years ago. Here's what worked and what didn't. If you're going to try it again, I'm super supportive, but you might want to consider this angle the, the next go around. And I tend to be answering a lot of those questions of like what has happened in the past. So it's, as you said, it's, it's just a, it's, it's to prompt a discussion and they're nothing, there's, this isn't a paragraph. This is like one line, like, you know, pricing strategies, you know, for subscription service or something like that. And it's like, how would you think about this? Or like, do you have a framework? Do you have some like mental rules or some mental model. I'm like, oh yeah, there's this thing that I've come across. And it's just to, to prompt the conversation back and forth. Yeah. 
I love that idea. Almost like a parking lot. I found, uh, so I'm guilty of midweek. I used to be guilty of midweek messaging people on the team and sort of unaware, right? The, I don't want to say burden, but when a senior executive messages a team member, even if it's just a question in passing, you think, wow, that's a priority for them. I better get on it. So I'm going to drop what I'm doing and do this other thing. When maybe it was just, it was often for me, you know, an idea in passing that I just wanted to get out of my brain and put somewhere else. But then you send people working at, in 10 different 20 different directions. So I, as part of the onboarding, I, I found it super effective to say, here's a parking lot. I'm going to put, you know, my weekly brain dump in the parking lot. Let's re I actually need three or four days to, to let that sit and let's revisit it. And often you'd come back to it three or four days later and go, well, that's a bad idea. Like, I'm glad you didn't get running on it. Cause that's like, it sounded like a good idea, but it's actually not a good idea. So I'm glad we didn't do anything on it over the last two days. For sure. It's the words of the CEO weigh 800 pounds. And it's just oh, like yeah. this, like, I think you're right. It's this burden of like, wow, I better do something with this now because by the time, if I'm ever asked about this again, I want to be able to say like, oh yeah, I looked into it. And it's like, next thing you know, somebody spent an hour or two, maybe started a document. Oh, was that really necessary? I mean, I usually want to scope out like how big of a problem is this? Because that's what really ideas are solutions to problems. So before, you know, I'm careful to like actually try to articulate these as problems to be solved as opposed to just jumping to the solution. Because often it's like, oh, we're actually solving that similar problem somewhere else. And so let's try to pull these two problems together. Maybe there's one solution that can cover both. Yeah, it, it, that's exactly it. It, it. It's a parking lot. And most recently, actually, I've been loving, we use Gmail and they have this scheduled send feature. Mm -hmm. So I can write emails in the evening and schedule them to be you know, sent out at 8 a.m. the next morning. And same thing with the weekend. I don't want to be, people are already working approximately 20 to 30% more hours than they were when they were going into the office because everyone's working from home and it's like, well, what else am I going to do? So there's this, you know, the time when someone's not working and they're just trying to spend some time with their kids, with their family or go now that we've, you know, fresh air, be it summer or winter, you need some mental break time. And so to honor that, I use this scheduled send and it just sends first thing Monday morning. And everyone knows that, you know, I might've been thinking over the weekend or just wanted to, again, get something out, whether it's in the parking lot or it's the scheduled send and shows up at Monday at 8am. It's just boom, 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 boom. There's a big list of emails all from me. I, I think that's, it kind of speaks to this batch processing idea again. Along the lines of remote, so I've been to your office in London, beautiful office, big office, and you, I mean, invested with the intention of having sort of a home base for everybody. So the move to remote, are you, what, what are the plans? Are you, you going to stay primarily remote or is the plan to get people back in the office when you can? What are you, how are you thinking through this? The way we're thinking about this is what has once been a approach to work that I found maybe borderline distasteful of like, oh, we couldn't possibly have a remote workforce. Mostly that was because we had never done it. And, you know, there was a degree of ignorance there. I, we were very early, in fact, at least within the community here to move to a mandatory work from home. And that there was a couple keys that we initiated first off everybody we had a we had a work from home readiness assessment on the monday where everyone met with their team determined do you even have the technology at home chair office computer 
camera for video calls. And then by the end of the week, it was mandatory work from home starting the next Monday. So we were pretty quick to move. And since then, we've you know run surveys. Do people like it? Do they not? A lot of people do enjoy working from home. That said, I'm not sure everyone prefers it. So to go entirely work from home and like rip up the lease, I think that's again an extreme. So there's somewhere between 40 to 50 hours in the office and 40 to 50 hours at home. It's some mix between that. Right. And whether that's a day in the office and four days at home or the inverse of that or some combination thereof, we're going to try to create a flexible work plan for people that that kind of suits their their role, that suits their their needs. But you know, companies I think at this point, you know, again regardless of size, this is going to be a competitive advantage for those organizations that are willing to embrace a remote work option for employees. Not that it has to be everyone because a lot of people really enjoy, trust me, really enjoy coming together. Their colleagues are actually their closest friends. Yeah. So, in, so we want to obviously still facilitate that. And there's times I mentioned like big team meetings or training or quarterly kickoffs. You need to bring people together. But to, to expect that everyone's going to be in all the time, I think that's unlikely. And by actually opening up the idea of being able to recruit and employ top performers from around the country, around, you know, across North America, maybe even around the world. I think suddenly there's a new cohort of people that are graduating every year that are maybe looking for the next uh, change in their career that we just didn't have access to before. So we're seeing this as a, as an opportunity currently rethinking of, of, how we're going to work. But I would say the theme is a flexible working environment. And it's not just you get to move your what desk you sit in. It's a what is best suitable for you? Because I think that's going to go a long way to actually driving the performance and retaining employees over the long run. Yep. Last one before we wrap up. Has it has the move to remote changed your approach to any of those three areas of feedback? So the hiring of the right people, the setting them up for success in the right way and sort of the ongoing sync process has has the remote, I want to say remote first, but the remote mentality changed any of that for you? It hasn't changed it. In fact, I would say it's it's actually underscored the importance of having structure because mm-hmm. what you hear that is most challenging for, for people who are working remote is that there can be a bit of a lack of structure of, I don't know if I'm doing the right thing. I'm, it's now even harder to get a hold of my manager. And, uh, you know, I've read lots of articles. So I think we've, we've gone maybe on the other side, which is being intentional about upholding the cultural norms and, and practices that we've always had. And in the first um, couple of weeks, honestly, it almost felt like there was just too many meetings. Like everything was a video call. You probably lived through this yourself. And then now we're realizing, hey, if you can, why do a video call if you can send, if you can do a quick audio call? Why do an audio call if you can send an email? And why send an email if you can just do a status update on a project management ticket? So we've tried to find the right balance of like what needs a meeting and what doesn't. But the, the critical meetings around feedback, I mean, we've hired people, you know, remotely and we've run our first kind of round of performance reviews. We, we were halfway through a quarter. So we did the, you know, half halfway mark reminder of the quarter and revisiting the goals. And we're just entering in kind of performance quarterly 
quarterly performance review season. So these have been good practices that have actually created a sense of normalcy and predictability in an environment of uncertainty. Yeah. What what a great thing to have if you're suddenly not, if you're someone who needs or craves structure and you're suddenly not going into the office every day, having your one line job description, like this is the one thing that I'm responsible for. And here's exactly how I'm going to be measured for it. It's like you can have, you can do a million things at home and not have anybody around, but it's almost like I would just tape it up on my office wall somewhere. Like reminder, this is, this is the one thing, you know, this is the one most important thing. I think that clarity must be really helpful for people on your team. And last thing on this, one thing we actually did start up since coming, you know, kind of in a work from home situation was we actually run more daily standups with the teams where it used to be kind of once a week, hour and a half long meeting. We actually felt that the repetition of meeting daily for 15 minutes was more effective and it's everybody on video and we actually call it our top one. And so while there's the one line job description, we go through around the world in 15 minutes, everyone has basically 60 seconds to say, what was my top one accomplishment from yesterday? And what is the one thing I'm working on today? And Mm. that just Mm. creates intense focus for the next 24 hour period. It's too easy to go, well, here's all the things I'm going to do over the next month. It's like, we're just trying to break things down into understanding what my goals are for the quarter, but then what am I doing today to take one more step towards that? So you can see I've, you know, the, 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 the theme in all of this of like, breaking feedback and kind of this sometimes seemingly like, when do I do it and how do I do it? And just trying to break it into like really simple, like bite-sized pieces that can be given often daily or weekly. And that is, I find tremendously powerful and effective to actually getting the results that you, that you want. There's a lot of accountability that goes with it. There's a lot of comfort that goes with it. Feeling of accomplishment every day talking about, yeah, yesterday I launched an email campaign or a newsletter, whatever it is. But th- there's a lot of a great sense of accomplishment with you know moving the whole company forward, playing your part in moving the company forward. Yeah, that's great. So for people that are curious, voices.com, heck of a domain. So I guess they can find you at voices.com that's the easiest way sure to get in can. touch we're on twitter just at at voices and on facebook there as well or on linkedin so those are the kind of usual social websites you can find us on or follow the company or reach out to me available on all those platforms as well and is there anything that the community can do for you so you know a good handful couple thousand regular active listeners is there anything that we can be helpful to you with right now oh goodness i was i wasn't expecting that. Well, I'm a huge fan of podcasts and I've always wanted to start my own. And so I actually just launched a podcast called The Voices Experience, which is about me telling about my experience in starting the company, how I run it, the challenges. Some of it relates to our industry, but mostly it's the kind of the business startup story and experience. So that's available to everyone, wherever you're listening to podcasts, wherever you're listening now. Um, Yeah, go check that out. At least the first first couple episodes I think are great from like a, an entrepreneur founder story. Cool. The voices pot, the voices story is that? Yeah. The voices experience. The voices experience. All right. To hear a little bit more about the founding story. 
Well, I appreciate your time. You've been super generous. I think the topic of feedback is not one that we often cover in detail, especially for early stage founders or companies. And something that in my own entrepreneurial experiences, I wish I would have had at least a simple framework to approach the right way early on. So thank you for sharing the super tactical bits that I think have really set voices up for success here for the next chapter. Oh, pleasure is mine. I learned it the hard way and I'm glad to be able to pass that on um, to others. And hopefully you find it valuable and uh, put it to use. Perfect. Thanks, David. Appreciate it. Thanks, guys. You've been listening to the Ivy Entrepreneur Podcast. To ensure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player or visit ivy.ca forward slash entrepreneurship. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.